2 Kings chapter 19, verses 20 to 37 is our text. Last Lord's Day, we dealt with verses 14 through 19, where uh, we considered Hezekiah's prayer, and this evening we're picking up in verse 20 in what follows. Second uh, Kings 19, beginning of verse 20, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, I cut down its tall trees and its choice cypresses, and I enter, entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because of your arrogance, or rather because your arrogance has come up before, come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall, will be a sign for you. You will eat this year of what grows itself. In the second year, what springs up from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 
185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sheretzer killed him with the swords, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esharadon, his son, became king in his place. The reading of Holy Scripture, be seated please, and let's pray together. Our God and Father, we look to you now and to your word and to your spirit, and we ask that you would be pleased to hear our prayer as we look to you for the Spirit's illumination and grant uh, that the word, your word would come forth in the demonstration of the Spirit's power, both in preaching and in hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Psalms contain a wealth of resources for God's people. There are many songs for the godly to sing, ranging from songs of joyful praise and thanksgiving to songs expressing discouragement and lament. The Psalms have a didactic function. They're designed to teach us how to walk in righteousness before the Lord. Furthermore, the Psalms have, uh, the, the Psalms function as a prayer manual for believing men and women, boys and girls. They teach us how to address God, how to wrestle with God uh, in prayer, and what our expectations are to be when uh, we pray to Him. Very early in the collection of the Psalms, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, shows us what our expectations ought to be. Chapter, uh, Psalm 4, uh, verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, verse 1 and 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, rather. Hear, uh, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the, the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. David lifts his voice up. He declares that God will hear his voice, and he says that he will watch. Uh, he, will, he waits expectantly for uh, the answer. Uh, that God will give. And these, these examples uh, show that David believes in a God who both hears and answers prayer. Uh, in these psalms and the psalms that, follows, uh, that follow, he's, he's often found praying in, in times of trouble for deliverance from his enemies. And now the new David, Hezekiah, 
is facing serious trouble. The new Goliath, King Sennacherib, who's already taken Judah's fortified cities, has his army parked outside of Jerusalem waiting to pounce on the holy city. Hezekiah has gone to the house of the Lord. He's spread out Sennacherib's letter before the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 14, he's prayed for God's deliverance of Jerusalem. Chapter 19 and verse 19. And in the remainder of chapter 19, we meet the God who hears and answers prayer. In the first place, uh, we see here that Jehovah is the God who hears prayer. Among the many characteristics that distinguish Jehovah, the true God, from false gods, is that he hears, period, that he can hear. Uh, But because he can hear, he hears prayer. So when Hezekiah prays to Jehovah in a time of great distress, 2 Kings 9, 16, he can confidently say to God, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Such confidence was prevalent in the line of the Davidic kings. David himself expressed his assurance that God hears the cries of his people. And and, uh, in his address to him in Psalm 65, verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. In King Solomon's dedicatory prayer after the completion of the temple, 1 Kings 8, He put before the Lord numerous hypothetical scenarios that would, in the future, bring God's people before his throne to petition him for their various needs. And Solomon's constant drumbeat throughout that lengthy prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, as he anticipates all these situations, is, Lord... Hear from heaven. In the Chronicler's account of Solomon's prayer, of this prayer of dedication, a dedication, 2 Chronicles 7, God appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. And then he promises in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Can you imagine Hezekiah's encouragement to Jehovah's response, uh, the the encouragement that that it brought this fainting king's heart, as he heard the initial words of Isaiah's prophecy in verse 20. Thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, I have heard you. Now God no longer appears to his people to tell them that he hears them. When they pray, and he no longer uh, no longer reveals in prophecy that he has heard their prayer, and so doubts tend to lurk in our minds about the effectiveness of uh, our prayer, and we may wonder if God really does hear us uh, when we pray. 
The Holy Spirit has revealed in the narratives of kings and chronicles that Jehovah is indeed the hearer of prayer, that his ear is inclined to your prayer and my prayer and to our prayer corporately. In the account of King Hezekiah, we, ha- we hear him say to us, I have heard your prayer. Jehovah hears prayer. Secondly, uh, we read here about a God who answers prayer. God not only can hear, and he not only hears prayer, but when he hears prayer, he answers prayer. So far in this account of of the Assyrian threat against Jerusalem in chapters 18 and 19, it's a series of threats that have dominated the narrative. Back in chapter 18 and verse 20, the Rabshaka, uh, Sennacherib's spokesman, his orator, had said that Hezekiah had spoken empty words. And now Jehovah's word, rather than the boasts of Assyria, are to dominate the remainder of chapter 19. Here are words that create and destroy. Verse 21, this is the word that Jehovah has spoken. And the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's prayer through Isaiah breaks down into three parts. In the first part, Verses 21 to 28, God addresses Sennacherib's blasphemy and his pride. Jehovah's word is spoken directly against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Verse, the first part of uh, verse 21, uh, the ridicule that uh, Sennacherib has directed at Jerusalem uh, Isaiah's prophecy said, will be turned back on him. His messenger, you remember, mocked Jehovah's holy city as weak and defenseless. I'll give you 2,000 horses, and I'll bet you you can't come up with 200 riders uh, for them. Chapter 18, verses 23 and 24. Now Jehovah says that Sennacherib uh, will be mocked by Jerusalem as he ter- returns home to uh, Nineveh, second part of verse 21. He has, he's blasphemed Jehovah. He's acted arrogantly toward the Holy One of Israel. Uh, the Holy One himself says to the king of Assyria. Sennacherib speaks and believes as though he's a god, as though he's invincible. Uh, verses 23 and 24. He believes uh, that the whole earth is at his feet, that he can, controls every terrain, whether mountain, forest, or river. And of course, he doesn't literally dry up the streams of Egypt, verse 24, but there's little doubt that he imagined he could if he wanted to. His mistake has been to imagine that his military accomplishments have been achieved in his own strength. He fails to realize that he's not the Lord of history, not even of his own history, but a mere instrument in Jehovah's hand who's carrying out 
his judgments on uh, the earth long before Sennacherib's time. Jehovah had ordained it. He had planned it all. Uh, Verses 25 and uh, 26 say in answer to Sennacherib's prideful uh, boasts uh, on his own account, Assyria was merely a rod of uh, Jehovah's anger. Uh, Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 11 says, uh, And once the pagan nation uh, had fulfilled Jehovah's purpose, uh, the rod itself that he has, has uh, taken in his hand will, will be broken. Assyria uh, will be broken. They would suffer uh, the same fate that they afflicted on their prisoners. Uh, the Assyrians were uh, very brutal uh, in the way uh, they treated their enemies. They put uh, literally put hooks in the mouths of their prisoners and, and drag them. And here, uh, Jehovah claims that um, Sennacherib will be dragged with hooks back uh, with his army to where they came. In verse 28, as Shakespeare commented on the fleeting nature of life in Macbeth, Sennacherib, like a poor player, struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. The second part of of, of Isaiah's prophecy in verses 29 to 31 looks beyond uh, the withdrawal of the Assyrians from Judah and addresses the question of what will happen after Assyria uh, leaves. How will God's people survive? How will they be cared for? And it answers that the recovery will be slow, but the remnant uh, remaining in Jerusalem will survive and go on and t- to take root in the land and prosper. And the sign uh, that this recovery will take place in the long term is found in the way the remnant will be provided for in the short term. In the aftermath of the Assyrian assault, life is going to be bleak in Judah. But God's people will be able able to to survive because of the crops that have already sprung up in the ground. And in the third year, they'll be able to resume normal agricultural practice. In other words, the initial fragility both, uh, uh, of both human and economic conditions shouldn't be a reason for God's people to, to despair. This isn't a people under God's judgment like those described in verse 26 who were as vegetation of the field, as grass sprouting up on the housetops, withering in the sun, for lack of deep roots. This is a people under God's providential care guaranteed to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold to borrow uh, Christ's words from the parable of the sower in the Gospels. So God is going to take care of Jerusalem. That's his promise. That's his answer to, to uh, Judah 
and to Jerusalem as to what's going to happen after uh, the Assyrians depart. Uh, The third part of Isaiah's prophecy makes explicit the circumstances in which Sennacherib will return home by the way that he came, verses 32 to 34. He will do so before the army encamped outside of Jerusalem takes any military action whatsoever, before an arrow is fired, before a shield is raised, or a siege ramp is built, verse 32. The Lord will defend Jerusalem completely, saving the city from the Assyrians, just as Hezekiah had prayed. Jehovah will do so to protect his own reputation, which Sennacherib's words have called into question. Chapter 19, verses 9 to 19. Jehovah will also do so for the sake of David, his servant. Verse 34. This allusion to the Davidic promise of Uh, The covenant serves to illustrate the position in which Judah finds herself in these latter days. Unlike uh, many of uh, the kings of Judah in the Davidic line before Hezekiah. Prior to this instant in Kings, this promise has only been invoked to explain why the Davidic line continued in spite of the fact that the kings of Judah were apostate. And so God would say in so many instances, uh, we've considered these instances because of my servant David. It's because of the promise that I made with uh, my servant David. Uh, that I'm not wiping you off the map. But now we find it mentioned in this narrative, in verse 34 of this 19th chapter, in association with the best of Judah's kings, the very best, the summary uh, in the first seven verses here in chapter 19, says King Hezekiah. And yet, even his survival is explained explicitly in terms of divine grace. Because as we shall see, as as Judah herself is is moving towards final judgment, which the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had already undergone, 2 Kings 17, 7-20, the piety even of the most faithful is no guarantee of deliverance. But that's Hezekiah's petition in chapter 19 and verse 19. In fact, that's his sole petition uh, was deliverance from the king of Assyria's hands. Isaiah's first promise, uh, prophecy had promised that uh, Sennacherib would hear a rumor and return to his own country, chapter 19 and verse 7. Uh, the report coming uh, concerning the uh, 
king of, of, of Cush may have been uh, that rumor, uh, chapter 19 and verse 8. Isaiah's second prophecy now has reiterated the theme of return in verses 28 and 33. And now in verse 35, we read uh, the immediate event that precipitated Sennacherib's return. The great army outside Jerusalem's gates sustained enormous casualties when the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, went out and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp, and Sennacherib returns with his remaining forces to his capital, Nineveh, verse 36. The connection between these verses isn't explicitly made, but we, uh, there's no doubt, especially in light of what we read in verse 37, uh, that they are indeed connected. Having failed uh, to understand from his experience that Jehovah is God, Sennacherib finds himself one day in the temple of his God. He had blasphemously proclaimed that Hezekiah's good uh, God couldn't protect Judah's king, and now he discovers that it's he who lacks protection as he's murdered by his sons. Isaiah's prophecies uh, have been fulfilled. Hezekiah's prayer has been answered. Jerusalem has been delivered. The new David has overcome the new Goliath. God has heard and answered prayer. Now recall that the original audience of kings was, in fact, Judah in captivity in Babylon. This passage then contained tremendous encouragement for, for God's people in captivity, just as Hezekiah faced a serious taunts. Uh, the captives faced taunts from their tormentors as they sat by the rivers of Babylon, uh, being required to joyfully sing one of the songs of Zion. Psalm 137 recounts. But God's people in captivity, even in captivity in Babylon, were not altogether devoid of all resources. They had with them the mighty resource of prayer. Uh, we know that one of the exiles, the prophet Daniel, had made consistent and effective use of prayer. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 9, we find the prophet praying almost everywhere we turn in his prophecy. And we can safely assume that many of his fellow captives did the same. And this passage also contains encouragement for God's people today. So often we find ourselves like Judah of old. Our God is taunted 
Our faith is treated with contempt. What's the answer for the church today? It's found in the soul-cheering words from God to Hezekiah in Isaiah's prophecy, because you have prayed, I have heard. Prayer is always a resource for God's people. And he delights to show himself strong on behalf of his people when they realize their helplessness and humble themselves and come to him in prayer. The world mocks our praying. When I was in uh, the Navy... And the ship I was stationed on was out to sea. The ship's chaplain prayed every evening over the ship's amplified communication system so that it was heard on deck, in every compartment aboard ship, in every space aboard ship. The chaplain could be heard praying often for our safety when we were out at sea. And virtually every time the chaplain prayed, one of my shipmates in the shop where I worked mocked him. To this man, prayer was a sham. It was a joke. But the world enormously underestimates true prayer. It's powerful beyond description Because the eternal God himself stands behind it and works through it. Our example extraordinaire in praying, as in every aspect of the faith, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, what use our Savior made of prayer. Mark one thirty-five says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and departed and went out to a lonely place and was praying there. It's a remarkable passage in Mark's gospel. It's after uh, a night of healing and casting out demons. It was the night that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And Jesus, after that, what must have been an exhausting night, arose and departed, went out to a lonely place before dark and was praying there. Luke 5.16 says that he often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. And Luke 6.12, that he spent a whole night in prayer before he chose the twelve disciples. And just as David confessed in Psalm 65, so David's greater son expressed confidence that God is the hearer of prayer, saying in John 11, verses 41 and 42, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. That confidence belongs not just to kings like David and the new David Hezekiah, and not 
just to David's greater son, Jesus Christ, but also to us. And John wrote in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. What an advantage God has given to his people in prayer. This advantage has been purchased by the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. You remember that when Jesus breathed his last, the the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two symbolizing that God's people have direct access to the throne of grace. What a privilege is given to God's people to enter into the very throne room of God to bring their offerings of praise and thanksgiving and to bring their petitions before them. And we have an example extraordinaire who made much use of prayer. But we take little advantage of our advantage, the advantage that God has given us as believers in Jesus Christ, a privilege that Jesus purchased for us by his own sacrifice on the cross. May we be diligent to take advantage of our advantages as God's adopted sons. Let's pray. Our Father, we are ashamed of how little we pray. We are ashamed of how little advantage we take. We're ashamed that our awareness of this great privilege that we have doesn't motivate us to be often, uh, to make great use of prayer, to follow after the example of our Savior, uh, to come before you in the early morning and seek your face, to spend extended time in prayer. We are ashamed, O Lord, and we're convicted of our neglect of the important means of prayer. We pray that you would awaken us to 
the great truth that you are the God who hears prayer, the God who invites his people to come, to ask, to seek, to knock on the door of heaven, to knock on the very throne room of the Most High God himself. And a God who is pleased to answer his people when they realize their helplessness and they humble themselves before their God in prayer. We pray, O oh God, for greater diligence in the use of the means of grace. We pray for greater grace uh, that we might uh, be zealous before you, before the throne of heaven. Hear our prayer now in answer, in accordance with your good and perfect will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.